Jesus affirmed that God created recently in six days and that there was a global flood. But some people in the church say that God used evolution over millions of years. Was Jesus wrong about creation? That's the topic this week on Creation Magazine Live. God's Word, the Bible, is an accurate account of creation and it tells us how people can have a relationship with the Creator. Honoring God and explaining aspects of His Word is the focus of this podcast. Welcome to Creation Magazine Live. My name is Richard Fangrad. And I'm Thomas Bailey. Was Jesus wrong about creation? That might sound like a ridiculous statement to make about the Son of God, <laughs> but some people who are convinced that evolution is true and that the universe is billions of years old answer that question, yes, Jesus was wrong about creation. Now, that's probably shocking to many of you, and it should be. How can people say that? And, and we're talking here about people who self-label as Christians, by the way, not, not God-haters. They're drawing attention to the fact that Jesus, in his incarnation, was in fact fully human. And since humans make mistakes, Jesus, in his humanity, was mistaken about Genesis, where it says that God created in six actual earth rotation days, all humans come from two people, and there was a global flood. For some people, it's just assumed that Jesus must have made mistakes. And then that gets extended to all of Scripture. Mm. For example, Kenton Sparks writes, If Jesus, as a finite human being, erred from time to time, there is no reason at all to suppose that Moses, Paul, John wrote Scripture without error. Okay, so the implications here are huge. If Jesus was wrong about the creation account because, well, there are a lot of smart people today that think we evolved from pond scum, then was there anything that Jesus was right about? Dr. Carl Wieland, the founder of Creation Magazine, said about this issue, One thing is very clear from all of this. Namely, that the erroneous belief that science insists that evolution and long ages are fact is the most serious challenge to biblical authority. That's right. And thus to the faith in general that Christendom has ever faced. If even Jesus' words in Scripture can't be trusted on some issues, how are we supposed to trust anything in the Bible at all? Yeah, well, that's, that's the question, right? Now, for those of you who are still baffled that people can even propose that Jesus was wrong, We'll try to help you understand this from their perspective. One of the go-to verses for folks that hold the view that Jesus could be wrong is usually Philippians 2 verse 7, which right. reads, Though he, talking about Jesus here, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What some have suggested is that Jesus gave up some of his divine attributes, such as omniscience. Yes, and they'll cite verses that say that Jesus did not have all knowledge. For example, in Matthew 24, 36, it says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So based on those verses in isolation, it certainly seems legitimate to suggest that Jesus could be wrong about creation, okay. and who knows what else. But we need to examine all of Scripture, not just take a few verses in isolation. That, that's right, yeah. The key to understanding these verses and our subject today was Jesus wrong about creation, as well as many other aspects of Jesus, is understanding the nature of the Incarnation. That is, understanding the nature of someone who is described by Scripture as being both fully God and fully human at the same time. We should probably mention as we move forward here 
this is not an easy subject to grasp. Right. So you may want to set your PVRs and record this to watch it several times. If you're watching online, read the articles on creation.com that we've linked to this video's description. Yeah. Because we're only going to scratch the surface in the time that we have. Studying this is worth the effort, though, so stick around. In the verse that, uh, that, that you read there, Philippians 2.7, it says, But he emptied himself, being born in the likeness of men. The word emptied there is the echinosin in the original Greek that the New Testament was written in there. And from that, we get the word kenosis. The doctrine of the kenosis is a subset of the doctrine of the incarnation. The word incarnation means the act of being made flesh. John 1 verse 14 reads, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Mike Riccardi, in his book High King of Heaven, Theological and Practical Perspectives on the Person and Work of Jesus, writes, the study of the incarnation and kenosis of Christ confronts us with some of the loftiest ideas able to be conceived by the human mind. The metaphysics of defining a nature and a person, confessing the union of two distinct natures in one person without contradiction and more. Many Christians deride such study and counsel others not to waste time on what they view to be overly speculative and philosophical discussions. However, our praise of Christ is only as deep as our understanding of his glorious person and work. The heights of our worship will never exceed the depths of our theology. Mm. Therefore, the genuine worshiper of Christ must always be a student of Christ. Yes, so to study the incarnation of Christ has great value for the Christ follower. The great advantage we have is that the study has already been done. By examining church history, we can learn from past errors false views of the nature of Christ and examine how those views were refuted by Scripture so that we don't get stuck in the same wrong ideas. Right. The task of the church, that is Christ's followers, is to do theology. Yes. And theology is the queen of the sciences. In other words, believers can get to the truth about who Jesus is by studying all of the biblical data putting all the texts that relate to the nature of Christ together and formulate them into a coherent whole. Many who have attempted to do that task have failed. Yes, yeah. Now here's, here's a short list, for example. The adoptionists denied that Christ was truly God. They taught that he was human, that Jesus was adopted by God at his baptism, but remained man only. The docetic Gnostics denied Jesus was truly man. They believed that spirit was inherently good and the physical matter was inherently evil. So Jesus couldn't really be human that is, physical. They say Jesus only appeared to be human. The Arians denied that Christ was fully God, uh, that he was God-like, that he was of similar substance with the Father, but not of the same substance. That's the Arians. The Apollinarians denied that Christ was fully man. They said the divine nature of the Logos, the Word, replaced what would have been the soul in Christ Jesus. In other words, even though Jesus was a man, he did not have a human mind. His mind was divine, not human. Okay, all right. So the adoptionists said that he wasn't truly God. The Arians said that he wasn't fully God. The Decetists said that he wasn't truly man. And the Apollinarians said that he wasn't fully man. So th there were also some heresies that wrongly described the relationship between Christ's divine and human natures. For example, the Nestorians emphasized the disunity of human and divine natures of Christ, that his divine and human natures are completely distinct and separate, that Christ essentially exists as two persons sharing one body. That's basically, that's schizophrenic, basically. 
The Monophysites, the, this is sort of the opposite view of the Nestorians, they confused the two natures saying they were blended into one. Some, like their founder, said that Christ's human nature was absorbed into the divine nature so that Christ is a mostly divine being. Some taught that the human and divine nature combined to produce a third thing, not truly human or divine. Okay, well, what a mess. <laughs> in October 451 A.D., 520 bishops gathered in the town of Chalcedon to settle these various Christological disputes. Christology is, is the study of Christ, by the way. And there, after studying what the Bible says about Christ, they formulated the doctrine of the hypostatic union, that the incarnate Christ was one divine person who had two distinct yet united natures, divine and human. They produced the Chalcedonian Creed. Yeah. Part of it reads, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so there's a little snippet of the Chalcedonian Creed. And the production of that creed was an important event in the history of the church. It was an important step in further clarifying the nature of Christ. Jesus was and, and is, is yep. always exist, was, is, both human and divine. Is it possible that since he was human, that he was wrong about creation and a global flood? And if he was wrong, does that mean that God could have used evolution? We just mentioned that the Chalcedonian Creed summarizes the biblical data on the Incarnation, the nature of Christ. Chalcedon, in one paragraph, destroys all errant views of biblical Christology. Against the Nestorians, it affirmed that Christ's two natures are without division or separation, but concur in one person. And this is plain from the Bible. It never presents Jesus as having a, a conversation with himself. Right. Yeah. We never see a divine person addressing the human person in the same man. Yeah. Jesus addresses the Father because they are distinct persons who share the same nature. Jesus speaks of himself as I and the Father as you in his prayers. Right, and against the Monophysites, although he is one person, he does not subsist in one nature. Chalcedon says Christ is to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion or change and that the distinction of the two natures is not undermined by their union in a single person and that the properties of each nature are preserved and not commingled. That's what Chalcedon says. Against the Apollinarians, the Creed affirms that Christ possessed a rational soul as well as a body, and it attributes that rational soul to human nature. The person of the Son doesn't replace the human soul in the Incarnation. So then reasoning, the, the faculty of reason, the mind, intelligence, will, consciousness, is a property of nature, not person. So Christ had two minds, divine and human, two consciousnesses. Yes. Charles Hodge put it this way. In teaching, therefore, that Christ was truly man and truly God, the Scriptures teach that he had a finite intelligence and will, and also an infinite intelligence. In him, therefore, as the Church has ever maintained, there are two wills, 
two energei, or operations. His human intellect increased, his divine intelligence was and is infinite. His human will only had human power, his divine will was and is almighty. Oh, that's some mind-bending stuff. No pun intended. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> but can you see the value of studying this? We quoted yeah. from Mike Riccardi earlier, who said that our praise of Christ, our worship of Christ, is only as deep as our understanding of who he is and what he's done. And that just makes sense. Yeah. Uh, the better you know someone, the more effectively you can serve them and show love. That's right, yeah. If you're trying to, to love on someone, for example, by preparing a nice meal for them, let's say, and you make a, a, you know, a wonderful spaghetti dinner with all the fixins and a nice glass of wine and so on, but you don't really know much about them, what you consider to be this great act of service to them might fail. If they show up and, and, and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm celiac, so I, I, can't, I, I'm, I can't have gluten, so I can't have the pasta, and I'm allergic to tomatoes, give me a rash or whatever, and so I, I can't have the sauce, and I don't drink alcohol. It's a, it's a conviction issue. Well, epic fail, right? Now, had you known a little bit more about this person's dietary preferences, you would have done something else to show them your appreciation. Right. right. So in a similar way, the, the more we know about Christ, the better we'll be able to serve and worship Him. Yes. Yeah. Makes sense. And now, before we continue, we need to acknowledge that much of the content of this show came directly from Mike Riccardi's seminar at the 2017 Shepherds Conference, which in turn was based on his new book, we've already mentioned it, High King of Heaven, Theological and Practical Perspectives on the Person and Work of Jesus. In addition, there is also quite a lot of content on this topic on our own website, yeah. creation.com. To find those articles, just go to creation.com and in the search window, type in kenotic heresy or just kenotic and you'll find them. We shouldn't be surprised that Scripture describes aspects of both Jesus' human nature and His divine nature, since He possessed both at the same time. Right. Whatever can be said of either nature can be said of Christ as a whole. For example, Acts 20.28 20, says that God obtained or purchased the church with His own blood. But God doesn't have blood. Right. Jesus has blood because Jesus is a man, and He is God. So both properties, divine and human, apply to the single person. Yeah, and other examples include that Jesus is eternal God, yet born in time. He's the creator, yet possessor of a created body. He was sustaining the universe, get this, at the same time as being sustained by the milk from Mary's breast. Amazing. Omniscient God, yet increasing in wisdom. Omnipotent Lord, all-powerful Lord, yet exhausted and needing sleep. In these things, the Bible affirms the hypostatic union. Yes. That Christ is one person subsisting in two distinct yet inseparable natures. Despite Chalcedon and the biblical support for it, beginning around the Enlightenment and still today, some people suggest that Jesus must have emptied himself of at least some of his divine attributes to become human. That's right. Yeah, Wayne Grudem writes, it just seemed too incredible for modern, rational, and scientific people to believe that Jesus could be truly human and fully, absolutely God at the same time. The kenosis theory began to sound like a more and more acceptable way to say that, in some sense, Jesus was God, but a kind of God who had, for a time, given up some of his godlike qualities, those that were the most difficult for people to accept in the modern world. But kenoticism fails on multiple levels. 
For example, it undermines the Trinity. Right. If Jesus doesn't actively engage each of his divine attributes, he can no longer be said to subsist in the full essence of God. Yeah. So if during the incarnate period, Jesus was on a leave of absence from the Godhead, the Trinity becomes a, a binity. <laughs> if the Son is deprived of any of those attributes, even ten temporarily, the, the three persons of the Trinity cannot be said to be of the same substance. Right. So kenoticism destroys the nature of God. Right, yeah. Another problem with kenoticism is that if Christ surrendered his divine consciousness, then the personal continuity between the pre-existent Son and the incarnate Christ is undermined. Donald MacLeod writes, Up to the moment of his enfleshment, according to this theory, his knowledge suddenly contracts from infinity to that of a first-century Jew. That represents a degree of amnesia to which there can be no parallel. He forgot virtually everything he knew. After an eternity of divine self-awareness, he would suddenly not know who he was. Indeed, considering the importance of memory to personal identity, he would not even be who he was. And that doesn't fit the biblical data. No, it doesn't. Jesus was aware of his deity. Yes. John 17, verse 5 says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. John 8, 58, Before Abraham was, I am. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Okay, so he understands his unity with the Father. And no, it wasn't only later in his ministry, after he regained his divine consciousness, as some say. Luke 2.49 records that when he was 12 years old, he said, don't you know I had to be in my father's house? My, my father, not our father. No. The Jews understood that Jesus claimed to be God, and they were ready to kill him for that. That's right. For example, John 5.18 records that the Jews wanted to kill him because... Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's right. Same thing in uh, John 8, 58. He identifies himself as the I am. And in the next verse, the Jews again pick up stones to kill him. In, in John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. And again, the Jews understood that he saw himself as God, and they again picked up stones to kill him in the very next verse. And he not only knew who he was, Scripture presents Christ as exercising the same divine attributes that kenoticism claims he must have laid aside. Right, yeah. Omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence. Let's focus on omniscience. In Luke 5, when Jesus heals the paralytic, he reads the Pharisees' minds. They didn't voice their concerns there. In John 1, 47-49, Jesus not only recognized Nathaniel without ever having met him before, but he knows his character. And Nathaniel responds appropriately. You are the Son of God, he says. Jesus knew the Samaritan woman had five husbands, that Lazarus was dead long before he arrived in Bethany. Mm -hmm. John 2.25 says that he knew all men and what was in men. In John 16.30, the disciples conclude, Now we know that you know all things. And Jesus didn't correct them, saying, No, I only know what God the Father reveals to me. Right. Jesus himself is omniscient. That's, that's right, yeah. Uh, but what about Mark 13, 32, where Jesus says, regarding his return, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Isn't that solid evidence and an explicit admission that he wasn't omniscient? 
Not if we understand the hypostatic union. If Christ possessed both a fully divine and a fully human nature, then he was able to live on two levels of consciousness at the same time. Gregory of Nazianzus, who uh, lived in the 300s AD, wrote, We are to understand the ignorance in the most reverent sense by attributing it to the manhood and not the Godhead. Not knowing something is totally different than Jesus communicating falsehoods about creation. Right. Since Jesus didn't give up any of his divine attributes, as we wrap up here, let's focus on Philippians 2, 5 to 8, especially verse 7, and what this emptying himself was really all about. The canonicists say that he emptied himself of his deity, and therefore he could be wrong about creation. That's what they say. The word emptied is echinosin. Everywhere else this word appears, it means to nullify, to make void, or to make of no effect. Right. For example, Paul uses the word this way in Romans 4.14. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Right, and, and there no one asks, well, what has been emptied from faith? The idea here is that faith itself would be nullified. It would have no effect if righteousness was possible by keeping the law. So the text doesn't teach that Christ emptied himself of something, but that he emptied himself. In other words, he nullified himself. He made himself of no effect. The King James captures Paul's idea very well. It says, he made himself of no reputation. And the NIV renders it as, he made himself nothing. Both yeah. of those convey the meaning perhaps a little more clearly than emptying himself. Right, yeah. And the next words tell us how he made himself nothing. He did it by taking on a human nature. So he nullified himself, not by subtracting from his deity, but by adding humanity. It's an emptying by addition. John Murray explains, It is sometimes thought that when the Son of God became man and humbled himself, he thereby ceased to be who he was and in some way divested himself of the attributes and prerogatives of deity, that he changed the form of God for the form of man. He became poor, it is said, by emptying himself of divine properties, became poor by subtraction, by divestiture, by depotentiation. The scripture does not support any such notion. Even in his incarnate state, in him dwelt all the fullness of Godhood, Colossians 2.9. When the Son of Man became poor, it was not by giving up his godhood, not any of the attributes and prerogatives inseparable from godhood. When he became man, he did not cease to be rich in his divine being, relations, and possession. He did not become poor by ceasing to be what he was, but he became poor by becoming what he was not. He became poor by addition, not by subtraction. And John Calvin adds some helpful details Christ indeed could not divest himself of Godhead, but he kept it concealed for a time, that it might not be seen under the weakness of the flesh. Hence, he laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening it, but by concealing it. Now, a significant aspect of the kenosis was a concealing of the external manifestation of his divine nature. That, that wasn't all that it was, but that's a big part of it. So the bottom line is, for the people who want to get evolution into the Bible, they recognize that Jesus affirmed that God created recently in right. six days, yeah. and there was a global flood that only eight people survived. So they look to kenoticism to support the view that Jesus could be wrong about those things. Yeah, but kenoticism totally fails, and it's refuted definitively from Scripture. 
but false notions about the nature of Christ still infiltrate the church today. Studying these things, they're, they're very important and rewarding. And there, there's more information at creation.com where you can see Mike Riccardi's book there, High King of Heaven. You know what? Christianity is an evidence-based faith. And science supports Scripture. We'll see you next week. Today's episode was originally formatted for broadcast TV and is available online at the links in the podcast show notes. Both are produced by Creation Ministries International, publishers of Creation Magazine. For more information for the accuracy of the Bible, visit creation.com. You can also donate to the ministry at creation.com donate. And thanks for listening. 